All right. Uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you that you have uh, pledged yourself uh, to your word. Lord, that you have guaranteed that your word is effective despite the folly of the preaching, uh, despite the misunderstanding of the reader. Um, and uh, Lord, that's what we're banking on tonight. Uh, we're banking on uh, your word, uh, assuring us of your grace and convicting us of our sin. Uh, so Lord, would may uh, you set uh, your son, Jesus Christ, before our very eyes. This is our request of you. We ask you to answer it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you'll see um, confession of sin, uh, even a cursory reading of our text, uh, that tonight's sermon is about money. Um, money is an awkward topic for me uh, to talk about with you as a church because your giving is what funds my life. Uh, that's always that's obvious in every setting, but preachers usually don't say that. Uh, it's also an awkward subject for all of us, regardless of being a preacher or not, because uh, we've got a broken relationship either, with it. We either feel condemned by the mention of it because of our poor decisions that have left us with crippling debt, or we feel very prideful about it because we have a plan, we have goals, and we execute that plan, and we meet those goals. So you see what I mean? It's awkward. It's touchy. Uh, the easy thing to do would be to just avoid it altogether. So why not? Why not just avoid it? Why not just judge through with uh, pegs to temples, people's temples uh, and judges? Uh, it's because uh, the Bible talks about it too much for us to ignore. The other reason is the longer that I'm a pastor, the more that I see that money is a subject that's always on our mind and is frequently at the root of why we do what we do. But there's another reason to talk about it. Um, it's an important theme in the story of our church. About three years ago, uh, our church uh, started talking about doing a capital campaign. A capital campaign is uh, a season in the life of a church uh, where a lot of money is raised. It's, an, it's a season to, uh, to, to go under dis, some discipleship about what money is and how we should be challenged to give sacrificially. And what our church decided to do at the very onset of our, this capital campaign was to finish our building. Uh, this is not this building. We rent this space, but our uh, other building on the south end of town. We were to finish the building. Uh, we're also hoping to eliminate some of the debt that was associated with the sanctuary that was already there. That's what the capital campaign was going to be about. And then one day... Uh, one of the wise people uh, who doesn't get paid by the church, but who's just a leader in the church, said, hey, I've got a question. Um, this new construction is great. Paying off the debt sounds great. But we have two full services. And if we finish the facilities, that's just going to enhance our space problem on Sunday mornings. And we thought, gosh, uh, we're idiots. How do we not think of that? You know, uh, and so we added a third element into the capital campaign, and that was planning a church, this church. It's pretty crazy if you think about it. Uh, usually a church planner, someone in my shoes, before they get started, they have to go out and raise two hundred dollars to $400,000 before they can plant the church. But what Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church did was they said, we're going to fund the whole thing, 100% of the budget for the first three years, even if not a dime comes in from this congregation. Now that's pretty generous. 
Uh, when I tell that to other church planners, they say, uh, you guys going to do that again? Can I come? Uh, and here we are. Uh, we're one month into year three. So the gravy train from the capital campaign, it's going to stop. And it's going to stop next September. Then we're going to be on our own. We're going to get cut off. Mom and dad aren't going to pay for our cell phone anymore. They're not going to pay for our car insurance anymore. And so for the next year, what we're going to do is put a little extra focus on money. Uh, it's not going to be an intense season of capital campaign. Essentially, I'm going to preach on it every couple months. Uh, we're going to have a focused time within our neighborhood groups to create some space to have a conversation about money. Uh, we've not put any financial, um, uh, any financial information in the bulletins. You've seen that the last few weeks. All this is an attempt to get to a place when we're going to be cut off from mom and dad. And so here's what my hope is. As your pastor during this next year, I hope that all of us, that we see some uh, degree of sanctification. We see the ball move forward in our own hearts. We're more and more free from the love of money. I also hope uh, that by the end of this year, uh, that we as a faith community are self-sustaining. And if we are self-sustaining, if we are paying all our own bills, we're very, very close to not being Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church dash downtown. But we will be downtown Presbyterian Church. Here's why that's a big deal. That means the decisions that happen with us as a body, uh, the governing, the people who are governing those decisions are, will all be found in this room. Right now, that's not the case. It's not a bad thing. Uh, they're not doing a bad job. It's just they're not here. Uh, the other thing, the other advantage we have to being downtown Presbyterian Church and not Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, Dash, downtown, um, is that we'll be further integrated into the life of our community. And that's really exciting. So money's been a big part of our past. We've been funded generously. And it's going to be a big part of our future. But the place where it's the biggest deal isn't just in the story of our church. It's a big deal in our hearts. And that's primarily how the Bible talks about money. It doesn't talk about it in the terms of vision like I just did with you. It talks about it as a heart issue. And that's our passage tonight. So let's read it together. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 6 to 10 and 17 through 19. Uh, and the reason that uh, 11 to 16 aren't in here is because uh, uh, Paul chases a rabbit uh, from verses 11 to 16. Uh, if I were preaching through 1 Timothy, I would do it this way. Then I'd come back and do 11 to 16 next week. But we won't do that. So um, this is all kind of one continuous train of thought. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of the Lord. So this passage breaks down uh, with three, uh, three D's. The disciplines of money, verses 6 through 8. Uh, the danger of money, 
verses 9, 10, and the first part of 17, and then the deliverance from money, uh, the last part of 17, and then 18 and 19. So uh, disciplines, danger, and deliverance. So the disciplines, right there in verses 6 to 8, right off the bat, you see two. You see contentment in verses 6 and 7, that's the first discipline, and simplicity is verse 8. And what Paul's saying to this young pastor, Timothy, is that these are the standards set for Christians. But to us, this contentment, this simplicity, they sound as foreign to our ears as outhouses and living without the internet. So let's start with contentment. Verses 6 and 7. Uh, what Paul's trying to do here is he's saying to this young pastor, he's saying, um, he, he's saying, he's ministering in a context, Timothy is, where there's other false teachers around. The other false teachers, what they're trying to do is they're teaching about money in a, in a manipulative way uh, so that they might get rich. What the teachers, these false teachers, what they're really saying at a heart level is this. There's great, instead of, this is what they're saying instead of verse 6. They're saying there is great gain with godliness and money. But that's not what verse 6 says, is it? Verse 6 says, there is great gain with godliness and contentment. In other words, the ones who gain the most are not the ones with money. The ones who gain the most are the ones with contentment. But when we think about money, we usually think of money as the key to make us feel safe and content and secure. We think if we had more money, then we would really like ourselves. But then you get some money and you find that you doubt yourself more than you did before. You think, if I had more money, then my relationships would go better. But then you get more money and you see that money just complicated your relationships. You think if I had more money, um, then we would feel safe. We wouldn't have to worry. But then when you have a lot of money, you worry more than ever because you have more to lose. So we're delusional about money's actual power to make us content. But money can't make us safe and secure. Only contentment can make us safe and secure. That's verse 6. Look at verse 7. What he's saying in verse 7 is that we don't come into the world with anything. We don't leave with anything. But in the in-between, we amass wealth only to leave it behind. So our contentment in the present is totally dependent on a belief in a future where possessions don't matter. But if my future isn't dependent on possessions, then why do I start shopping on the internet whenever I get bored? It's because I'm discontent. Uh, Jen and I, uh, we were great at piling up school debt. I mean, awesome at it. Um, we went to college between the two of us. We went for 16 years. It's a long time. I mean, college was cheaper back in the late 90s, but 16 years is a lot to pay off. And for a long time, I thought, when we, I'll be really free when we've paid off our student debt. Boy, we pretty much did that, and then we didn't feel free. Then I thought, you know what, if I could just get to 20% equity on my house, so I don't have to pay PMI, then I'll feel really free. If you don't know what PMI is, you're better for it. <laughs> we got the 20%. I still don't feel really free. Because now what I think is if I can get enough money in, in the accounts for college for the kids, for braces for the kids, for weddings for the girls, then I'll be free. But it's a delusion. I think if we can just get everything done on the house that we've talked about doing to the house, then I'll be free. 
But it's all an illusion. See, obviously, my definition of contentment isn't working. So what is the biblical definition of contentment? Well, that's what we see in verse 8. And it gets to our second discipline, that of simplicity. The definition is a simple one. It's, it's to live a simple lifestyle. It says food and shelter, uh, but the word, uh, the, or food and clothing, but the word for clothing uh, could also include shelter. So what Paul's saying is that if you have food, you have shelter, and you have clothes, then you should be content. But this definition, a thing I love about it is it doesn't leave the notion of contentment to subjectivity. I don't get to decide for myself what contentment should mean. It gives us something objective, something tangible for us to hang our hats on. And this definition is timely, isn't it? It's timely for those of us, all of us, who live in the 21st century American consumeristic, individualistic society. Because our definition for what we think should be content is different for some of us. But what we all have in common with our different definitions is that it all goes way beyond food, shelter, and clothing. See, food, shelter, and clothing, those are the necessities. But when the list of what our hearts demand for contentment, when it gets longer than those three things, we're revealing that we've added luxuries and called them necessities. We wouldn't call them luxuries if we were asked. But we don't get them, and we throw fits about not getting them. It exposes us. So when we see this list, when we see this definition of simplicity, it, it reorients us to reality. It reorients us to a simple life, a life of adequacy and a life of sufficiency. So you see what simplicity does, don't you? Simplicity calls for us to impose limits on our spending. It forces it us to make deliberate choices about what I say yes to and what I say no to. Simplicity calls for all of us. And all of us are rich by the world's standards to step down in lifestyle. And the older you get, the more money you have, the greater distance there should be on how you could live and how you actually do. These are the standards. I bet none of us get to this point in the text. These first three voices, verses were saying, uh, done, Marsh, got it. Uh, that's so easy. Come on, Mark, bring the wood tonight. I don't think any of us are saying that. I think all of us, we feel like we're just going down I-75 or I-64. We're on the expressway. We blew by the cop who was hiding behind the corner going 90 miles per hour. They flick on the light, and we know it. We're busted. We know that we broke the standard. Because these disciplines, these standards, they're tough to keep. You think that Paul's going to start letting up when you get to verse 9, but he doesn't. He drills down even harder, and he shows us what happens when we don't submit ourselves to these standards, to these disciplines. He shows us the danger of money in verses 9 and 10. They're tough words, verses 9 and 10. It talks to us at a heart level at the danger of money. In verse 9, you see it? He says, the desire to be rich. See it in verse 9? Verse 10. He says, the love of money. Verse 10, he says, craving money. So we see that the danger is at a heart level. We also see that danger is a gradual, it's something that we gradually fall into. It's a trajectory. It's a plight. And it's the plight of those who want more than food, 
shelter, and clothing. You see the, the, you see the trajectory. It all starts with a temptation. It's a temptation we fall into. The second thing is that it's a snare. The next thing you see as it goes down, verse, as we keep reading here in verses 9 and 10, it plunges us into destruction. The next thing is we wander from the truth. And lastly, we're in the most pitiable of estates. We're self-mutilating. See, so you see the decline? It's a temptation all the way to self-mutilation. It's tough. I bet you none of us, we read that and say, you know, I'd like to sign up for that. That sounds like a great life. Um, I, I really, I really would love to be in the most pitiable states. I'd love to be a self-mutilator. But we're not saying that. Well, I bet you a frog, uh, you, you, know what, you know the old frog in a boiling pot, don't you? A frog would jump out of a pot of boiling water if it were put in it. But if a frog is put in tepid water, which is slowly brought to a boil, it doesn't perceive the danger. And then it boils it to death. It's kind of like, it kind of makes you ask the question, why would anyone want to get rich <laughs> if this is what's going to happen to them? Why would anyone love this? Well, it's because we've been seduced. And the seduction is, that we don't, is one that we don't perceive, just like one doesn't perceive stepping into a snare. You know, Jesus talked about money a lot. This isn't, this isn't a passage in the Gospels. This is a passage in one of Paul's letters. But Jesus in Luke 12, 15 says this. He says, watch out for all forms of greed. Watch out. You know what Jesus never said? Watch out for adultery. You know why he didn't, right? It's because you know when you're sleeping with someone, not your spouse. Jesus doesn't say, watch out. You might be a murderer. He doesn't do that because it's real obvious when you kill somebody. He doesn't say, watch out, you might be a thief because you know when you've stolen something. But he has to say, watch out for all forms of greed because greed is sneaky. You had no, one's ever, no one's ever come to me and said, Pastor, you know what? I'm not, I need to confess my sin. I'm greedy. Never happened. I've gotten pastor, I have a porn addiction, pastor, I'm depressed, pastor, I'm prideful. But no one is even aware that they're greedy. But here's how you know. Here's how you know you're greedy. And that you are somewhere on this downgrade from temptation to self-mutilation. It's when you think of money this way. It's when you think that you need more money. That's the first test. The second test is that you think you don't have enough to give it away. But if you think you need more money, or if you think that you, you, you have to have more money in order to give it away, that's pretty arrogant, right? Well, that's what the first part of verse 17 is saying. Do you see it? As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. I know you don't use that word. I don't use it either. But it means prideful. It means arrogance. But it's easy when you get a lot of money to generalize your success and your money, and then you grant yourself virtue. See, what wealth tends to do is it tends to make you overconfident all of your life. And John Flavel, the, the, the 17th or the 18th century Puritan, he says this. It's a great quote. It's short. He says, To see a man of prosperity be humble is the greatest rarity in the world. Let me say that again. To see a man of prosperity be humble 
is the greatest rarity in the world. So it's pretty clear we have a problem. And now that you and I are thoroughly beat down by the time we get to the, the halfway through verse 17, we're wanting a way out. We're wanting a deliverance from this danger. We want to be empowered to live uh, lives of disciplines, of contentment and simplicity. But how are we going to do it? Well, we see it in the second half of verse 17 through the end of 19. This is deliverance. And in these verses, uh, you see this decided turn that Paul takes. He turns from this miserable plight, this downward trajectory that we're on when we make money an idol. And then he gives us a way out. He gives us five commands. One is, an, one is a command at our attitude, and the other four are practices. You see the attitude at the, halfway through verse 17? It says, but on God. It means hope. But hope on God. That's the attitude we're supposed to have. We saw in verse 17. Go back to verse 7. You see it in verse 7? Um, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. And then you, verse, the end of verse 17, you see it says, But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this in-between. We brought nothing in. We can't take anything out. But God gives us everything to enjoy in this in-between. Why don't we trust God to give us, to be the source of our real needs? Food, shelter, and clothing. He's our source. We should be confident of that. But we're fearful. And instead of money being used as a tool, it's used as an end in itself. But this is where it all starts. It's all an attitude. It's all at a heart level. If, that, if this is where the battle's being waged, don't you think that this is where the deliverance comes from too? I know it's a lot more appealing to have a three-step plan of how do you get not greedy. But the gospel isn't about a formula. The gospel is about a generous God who brings hope to the world and his one and only son, Jesus Christ. You see that God gave. He wasn't stingy with his most valuable possession. He gave him to us. This is Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see God's generosity to you? Do you see that he gave you his most valuable possession? And then to the degree that you see that God was generous towards you in Christ is the degree to which you will be free from the love of money. So deliverance is going to be a heart issue. It's going to be an attitude that we, that we, that we take on, this hope in God who's loved us. But then it's going to be practices. You see four that are right in a row. Do good, be rich in good deeds, generous, and be ready to share you see it all. You put those all together, which is really what Paul's doing. He's getting at the same thing from different angles with those four practices. He's trying to say uh, that we should be more like a reservoir and less like a swamp. You know the difference? Uh, a reservoir is a, is a place that gathers, is, is a large body of water that gathers water so that it could be dispersed and meet needs away from that reservoir. But swamps are different. The swamps, swamps gather water, and they're havens for disease, and the water is undrinkable. And so when our hearts, when they're moved by the gospel, we're like a reservoir with our money. It comes in and flows out to bless others. And when this is the case, we serve God, and we only use money. But our hearts can be like a swamp, too. Money hits us, and then it never leaves. We collect it. 
And we need it. And we need it to meet our own greedy ends. If that's us, then we serve money and use God. Do you see the difference? You might be thinking generosity, Marsh. I'm talking about survival here in my finances. I got no disposable income. I'm totally strapped with that. I'll give maybe when I'm a little older, maybe when I make some more money. And I understand. But here's a real question that I want to ask you tonight. What if the reason it's so hard for you to give is because it's so easy for you to spend? It's really hard to be generous when our lives are filled with our own consumption. But look at verse 19. There's a real payoff to being generous. Do you see it? Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, when we usually think about giving, we think in relationship to God, we think, oh, I'm going to be generous, just like God is generous, and it glorifies Him. I think that's okay to think. I also think that when we think about giving, we think about, man, we're, this is a horizontal thing. We're, we're meeting other people's needs. This is wonderful. But you see what Paul's doing in, in all these verses here, don't you? He's not talking about how it glorifies God, and he's not talking about the needs that it meets with other people. What he's talking about is how you, within yourself, your own relationship with money. And so he's enticing you. And he's saying, if you love yourself, then you will give your money away and you will have treasure in eternity. So the benefits are for the giver. And we take hold of the life that is really life when we give our money away. But friends, this is only going to happen as we treasure Jesus in our own hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we confess. we don't even know what to do with this sermon. <laughs> we don't even know what to do with this text. There seems like so many practical barriers uh, to this. And Lord, I, I pray uh, that we would take this to our community. And Lord, that we wouldn't trust our own view of our own finances. Lord, that we would take you seriously in Luke twelve fifteen when you say, watch out for all forms of greed. And so Lord, I, I pray that we, uh, we would be, you'd give us humility, uh, as we think about this issue, as we make decisions about this issue, and as we act on this issue. So, Lord, would you make us new people? Would you give us your spirit to empower us? Lord, for we can't do this on our own. We pray this in your name. Amen.